The reading is taken from 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, reading from verses 1 to 28. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, also to, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead was not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, Uni Church. Great to be back up here. Great to be back in church, isn't it? Still not quite the same, but it's so much better uh, than watching along at, at home on a stream, isn't it? I'm just thrilled to be back in person. 
Uh, What Grace has just read to us is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. And there's so much in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. We actually read half of it. You maybe thought that was a very long reading, uh, but there's another 30 verses to go. Uh, It's a very long chapter. And even in those 28 verses, there's an awful lot of content. Uh, It's a a chapter you could do an entire series on, uh, but we're not going to cover everything. We've only got a few moments. Uh, As evangelical Christians, uh, the cross, uh, that place where Jesus died uh, to take the punishment for our sins, is rightly at the very heart of our faith. Uh, We talked and thought a lot about it on um, Friday night just past, Good Friday. The cross is the focal point of our faith because that's where we were saved. But sometimes, and I certainly find this with myself, uh, I think we get so focused on the cross that we can forget about or maybe don't think as much about the resurrection. We think the resurrection is a bit of a a bonus uh, thrown into the cross, a sort of a happy ending that it's good that it's there, but it's it's probably not the most important thing. But for Paul, uh, the man who wrote this chapter in this book, Jesus' resurrection is as central as the cross. It's as important as the cross. In fact, if you look through Paul's missionary journeys as he traveled around the ancient world telling people about Jesus, and and that's all recorded in the book of Acts, of course, you look through Acts, you'll find that the resurrection is mentioned way more often than the cross. Of course, resurrection implies that a death took place, but for Paul, the resurrection is really, really, really important. But I think sometimes we don't think about it too much. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 is such a great chapter to come back to again and again and again, to be reminded of the centrality, not just of the cross, not just of Jesus' death for our salvation, but the centrality of Jesus' resurrection for our salvation. If you're a Christian, let me ask you, how does Jesus' resurrection affect your salvation? I don't think it's something we think a lot about, but that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. Look at uh, verses 3 to 4 with me if you've got a Bible. If you do have a Bible, please do keep it open at uh, 1 Corinthians 15. You'll find that helpful. Uh, Look at verse 3 to 4. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You probably didn't notice as you read that, but that is one sentence. It's not two sentences. It's not three sentences. It's one sentence. And that's because Christ's resurrection is of first importance. It's not that his death is of first importance and his burial is of second importance and his resurrection is of third importance. They're all of one importance. It's all one sentence. Jesus' resurrection is not an afterthought. For Paul, if there is no resurrection... There is no Christianity. No resurrection, no Christianity. Isn't that sort of what Nathan said earlier? It was investigating the resurrection of Jesus that that made it all click into place, that helped him see this is all real. That was a very 1 Corinthians 15 argument that Nathan gave us. As I said, we don't have time to look at all all of 1 Corinthians 15. Um, But I I would love it if you would go home and read those second 30 verses or so. What better thing could you do on Easter Sunday? Because in that second half 
of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we find the amazing picture, not simply of Jesus' resurrection, but of our resurrection. That's what the second half is all about. We'll touch on it uh, in these verses, but that's what the second half's all about. There can't be a better thing to do on Easter Sunday. What we're going to see in these 28 verses we're looking at is the reality of the resurrection. We're going to see Paul's attack on the rejection of the resurrection. And we're going to see the result of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection, the rejection of the resurrection, and the result of the resurrection. And hopefully, at the end, we will all, because we need one more R, rejoice uh, in these truths that we find in the Bible. So before we actually look at this passage, I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. And I'd love it if you prayed with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these amazing words from your servant Paul. As we read these words again, we ask that you would encourage us, correct us, and train us for righteousness. Thank you for the certainty we can have of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I read to you a few moments ago, we saw that at the very start of this chapter, Paul opens by reminding the Corinthians of the gospel that he had received and the gospel he had passed on to them. And he said that this gospel saves you, that's in verse 2, and he warns them, if you don't hold fast to this gospel, this good news, you'll find that everything that you've believed is a waste of time. You will have believed in vain. This is uh, the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the clues in the title. There's 14 chapters that go before. There's only one chapter that comes after. And from the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been uh, reminding the Corinthians of what he taught them uh, and shown them how some of their behavior, their beliefs had sort of gone off track a little bit. And so 1 Corinthians is about getting back to the basics, back to what it's all about. And for Paul, he says, this gospel, this thing that saves him, it all hangs on the resurrection of Jesus. It all hangs on the resurrection. In those 39 words, I received what was of first importance. Christ died, buried, raised, according to the scriptures. 39 words, that is the core of the gospel. That Jesus died, was buried, and that he rose. And Paul tells us that all of this happened, not out of the blue, But rather, it all happened according to the Scriptures. Paul's referring to the Old Testament. Uh, Many of you will know those 39 books written before Jesus was born. They outline in, I would argue, miraculous detail what was going to happen to Jesus hundreds of years before it happened, in in some cases, a thousand years before Jesus died. In the Old Testament, we read that God is going to send His Son We read that that son is going to serve his people and that he's ultimately going to serve his people by dying for them. You find that in Isaiah 53. In Psalm 22, we read of how God's servant would die. And in Psalm 16, we read that this servant would rise again. Again and again and again, the Old Testament predicts what's going to happen to Jesus. And Jesus is the only person that fulfills all of those promises. And so for Paul, those Old Testament promises are crucial for understanding uh, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how we can know for sure that what Jesus said is true and that what Jesus did worked. So according to the Scriptures, that's the most important uh, thing for Paul in his argument. 
But alongside this biblical argument from the Old Testament, Paul provides, and you might have noticed, seven pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Nathan said that he saw uh, all of the evidence uh, for the resurrection of Jesus, and that uh, helped him place his trust in the Lord Jesus. I'm sure he read 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm sure he saw these seven pieces of evidence. If you've got a Bible, scan down. They're in verses 5 to 11. The first six pieces of evidence are the appearances of Jesus. So first of all, Jesus appeared to Cephas, uh, Cephas is the Aramaic form of the name Peter, in case you're wondering. So he appeared to Peter. Then uh, there's appearance one. Appearance two, he appeared to the 12 disciples together. Appearance three, he appeared to a crowd of over 500 people. And Paul adds in the little detail to the Corinthians. Most of those guys are still alive. So if you don't believe me, go check it out. It all happened in Jerusalem. So he appeared to Cephas, the 12 disciples, a crowd of 500. Then he appeared to James. Who was James? Well, James was Jesus' brother. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about Jesus' family, but and maybe if you're, an old, if you're the oldest sibling like I am, this is even harder to imagine, but if you're not the oldest sibling, imagine that your older brother or sister went around telling people they were God, amassed a huge following of themselves, and... Um, what would you think of your older brother or sister, or even your younger brother or sister? You would think they're absolutely bonkers, wouldn't you? It would take an awful lot of convincing uh, for my little brother. My wee brother would need to be very convinced that I'm God. Uh, you can ask him about that later. And likewise, if, if he came to me and said, I'm God and I'm going to rescue you, I would say, you need to go to the doctor. Uh, you know. So th- that's a little bit like what James was like. James did not believe that his older brother Jesus was God's son. Of course he didn't. He thought he was mad. But then the risen Jesus appeared to James. And James went from being the younger brother, who thought his older brother was a bit mad, to probably the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem during the first century. Jesus appeared to James That's Paul's fourth piece of evidence. The fifth piece of evidence is that he appeared to all of the apostles together. And then the sixth piece of evidence, he says, Jesus appeared to me. There we have six independent pieces of evidence. And of course, there are more evidences than this. But six independent pieces of evidence that the Corinthian church could check out for themselves to see if this was true. And if the people in Corinth wanted to say the resurrection didn't happen, they needed to disprove not just one of these pieces of evidence, but all six. Paul's building a pretty strong case. And as you look down through history, you'll find that lots and lots of people have tried, have set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. What's remarkable is, more often than not, those people end up becoming followers of Jesus because they're so convinced of the historical arguments and then they read God's word and God opens their eyes. It's amazing to see it happen. One person that that happened to uh, was a guy called Thomas Arnold. He was the Regis Professor of History at Oxford University, so he's no dummy. Uh, He says, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is better provided by fuller evidence than the great sign that God has given us, 
in Christ, that he died and rose again from the dead. It's a pretty bold claim. Have you looked into these things for yourselves? What about that seventh piece of evidence that Paul gives us? Well, the seventh piece of evidence, it actually stems from the sixth piece of evidence, it's Jesus' appearance to Paul. The seventh piece of evidence for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus is the pattern of Paul's life. It's how Paul lived after Jesus appeared to him. You see, whenever Paul met the risen Jesus, he didn't just carry on as, as if, oh, that, that was interesting. There's a guy who I thought was dead is now alive again. No, no, no. Let's look at how Paul recounts his changed life. Verse 9 to 10, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. What Paul's saying is, he's reminding the Corinthians of what he was like before he met Jesus. Before Paul met the risen Jesus, he wasn't agnostic about Jesus. He wasn't on the fence. Paul hated Christians. Paul devoted his life to having Christians imprisoned and executed because of what they were saying about God. Because they were going around telling everyone, God has sent his son, we killed him, and then he rose from the dead. And Paul was devoted to seeing those people killed. And then one day, as he's traveling from Jerusalem north to Damascus, he meets the risen Jesus and he becomes no longer the persecutor of the church, but the great preacher of the church. He went from being a terrorist to a teacher. He went from having people killed for following Jesus to dying himself for following Jesus. If you're here this evening and you're not yet a Christian, and if, if you're here this evening and you're not yet a Christian because you're not quite convinced by this whole resurrection thing, you've got to solve the problem of Paul. Why did the church's greatest enemy become its greatest advocate? Why did the man who worked tirelessly to kill Christians end up being martyred for preaching that Jesus rose from the dead? The most logical explanation is that Paul met the risen Lord Jesus. He formally rejected the resurrection, but he discovered it was a reality, and he spent the rest of his life trying to convince the world that Jesus rose from the dead. It's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty hard thing to argue against. This is Paul's case for the reality of the resurrection. It wasn't a mass hallucination. It wasn't a covert conspiracy by people in power. Sometimes we sort of think, oh, well, they made, the disciples made all this up because they wanted to be in positions of power and prestige. We look at, you know, the wealth of, uh, and the power of the Roman Catholic Church, for example, and think, oh, you can see why someone would make something up to be to become that sort of a thing. But remember, that's not what the church looked like in the first century. Christians were executed. They were kicked out of their homes, kicked out of their communities for following Jesus. There's no 
conspiracy to power behind the story of Jesus. The disciples had nothing to gain from making this story up. It cost them all their lives. If you're going to deny Christianity, if you're going to deny the resurrection, you've got to reckon with these seven pieces of evidence, Paul's case for the reality of the resurrection. And why does Paul go into all this detail? Well, because there were people in this city of Corinth, people who called themselves Christians, who were denying the reality of the resurrection. They were rejecting the resurrection. Look at verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ had been raised. You probably think that the idea of a dead person coming back to life is ridiculous. Yes, that's kind of the point. It doesn't happen. That's what everyone in the first century thought. It's not that, you know, 2,000 years ago, everyone believed everything that they heard. Oh, yeah, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. That happens, that happens all the time. No, no, no. The idea of resurrection was madness to the Roman people. In fact, that's what Paul gets mocked for when he presents his argument to the people in Athens. And in Corinth, there were people who had been drawn to the teaching of Jesus. Maybe they liked his ethics. Maybe they liked being a part of this community. But they thought, ah, I can't get on board with this resurrection idea. That's, that's a bit too far. Sadly, today, there are people who call themselves Christians who say, well, Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. Sort of a, a metaphorical thing. I had a conversation with a gentleman this week who said that very thing to me. No, 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 Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. He sort of is all metaphor, a picture. I think 1 Corinthians makes it really, really clear. There's nothing metaphorical about this in Paul's mind. You don't provide seven pieces of evidence for a metaphor. And as Christians, we might be tempted to look at these Corinthians and think, oh, that was really silly, trying to do away with the resurrection. We would never do anything like that. Why try and make the Bible say something it doesn't? Just because it doesn't sit well with the world around you. That's what was going on in Corinth. And while we may not be tempted to downplay the resurrection, we might be tempted to downplay other parts of the Bible that don't sit well with our culture. There's always things in the Bible that that rubs against our culture. In the first century, it was the resurrection of Jesus. Today, it's, well, there's lots of things, isn't there? It's very tempting in every age to deny the parts of the Bible that the world doesn't like. This can happen really, really easily. It can happen for good motives, good intentions. Well, if we don't mention this part of the Bible, well, then more people will come to church. If I just let this particular principle slip, then then the world around us will listen to us. It was a big temptation in Paul's day. And it was a big, and it remains a big temptation in ours. But look at what Paul says to those tempted to sweeten the message of Christianity. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God 
For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him from the dead, if in fact the dead are not raised. You see, by tampering with the story of the gospel, the good news of Christianity, by tampering with that, by rejecting the resurrection, Paul says that all preaching is useless. He says that all faith is useless. Because ultimately, if what the Bible says about this isn't true, well, then God cannot be known. See that at the end of verse 15? If God's appointed messengers either Jesus Christ or his 12 apostles, if they cannot be trusted to tell the truth in this instance that God rose from the dead, but apply it to anything the apostles said, if the apostles are lying or wrong about something, how on earth can we trust what they say about anything? If we say, well, Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, well, then we have to throw everything out because how can we know anything about God? if they got this thing wrong. Just over uh, 10 years ago, uh, a huge apartment building uh, was built in Shanghai. Uh, there is a picture here, Emily, but don't put it, through, don't put it up yet. Um, this was a 13-story apartment. Um, and after the building was completed, there was, another, there was a number of buildings built around it. Uh, the builders decided that we're probably going to need some parking around here. It's, I mean, we think the Holy Lands is bad for parking. Uh, I imagine Shanghai is much worse uh, even 10 years ago. So they said, we need, we're going to need to build a car park. We can't afford the land beside it. So we'll just dig underneath the apartment building and we'll put in a nice underground car parking system. And so the apartment building was built and they started to dig, dig at the foundations and then the entire building collapsed. It literally fell on its side, destroyed. What this shows us is that, see when you remove the foundations from anything, the whole thing falls. Denying what the Bible teaches removes the foundations of the faith. And ultimately, your faith will collapse. It mightn't happen as quickly as this happened, but it will happen because you've removed the foundation. The very substance of our faith hangs on the resurrection. Our salvation, our rescue from God's judgment hangs on resurrection as well. See that in verse 17? You can put that away now, Emily. See that in verse 17? If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Now, that's not, how, that's not how I think, because I think, oh, well, it was the cross that saved me from my sins. What does the resurrection have to do with it? Isn't the cross enough? Paul says no, because Jesus' resurrection isn't just proof that Jesus is who he says he is. It's proof that Jesus' work did what he said it would do. Jesus' resurrection vindicates Jesus' teaching. It proves that he was telling the truth. Because again and again and again in the Gospels, Jesus says, I'm going to rise on the third day. Jesus' entire mission, his entire message hung on that promise. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we cannot trust a word that he said. Not only does Jesus' work hang on the resurrection, not only does all of his teaching hang on the resurrection, but our future hangs on the resurrection. Look at verse 18. 
Those, this is if there, is, if there is no resurrection, those who have fallen asleep, that's died in Christ, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be pitied. To reject Jesus' resurrection ultimately removes the end result of his resurrection, our salvation, our eternal life. If Jesus hasn't been, hadn't, hasn't been raised from the dead, then church is a waste of time. Christianity is a waste of time. If, Jesus, if, if it was proved next week that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then uni church should close. We should never come back because it all hangs on the resurrection. It's not about Jesus' moral teaching. It's not about his ethical framework. It's not about the worldview he provides. Wonderful all those things. Wonderful as all of those things are. It all hangs on the resurrection. But Paul doesn't leave us uh, on a sort of negative note because he then goes on to outline the result of the resurrection. He sort of explains how it impacts our future. Uh, look at verse 20. Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. So the result for us of Jesus' resurrection, well, we know what the results are because Jesus is the first fruits. What on earth does that mean? Well, if you've been following along in our Romans series, this idea of first fruits should be familiar to you by now. It's in chapter 8, it's in chapter 11. The first fruits are the proof that the harvest is coming. It's the first batch of apples, oranges, corn, whatever it is. The first fruits that appear on the tree that prove that the harvest is coming, that more food is coming. I often think whenever I see snowdrops uh, arrive sort of around February, March time, that's what I think of. uh, These first fruits, this sign of life in the midst of death. The snowdrops are there. The trees are dead. There's frost in the ground. You think, is winter ever going to end? And you see those snowdrops and you remember, yes, spring is coming. Life is coming. That's what Jesus' resurrection is. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of the final resurrection. See that in verse 13? Uh, 23, sorry. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom, of God, the, the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Christ's resurrection is proof that we will be raised. It's proof that those who are trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, though they die will live. And not just as some ethereal spirit in the sky, not as angels playing harps on clouds, but in real, physical, resurrected bodies. That's what's coming for the Christian. The Christian will be raised to on that last day. The Bible makes it really clear that the results of the resurrection isn't just uh, limited to believers. Paul says that Christ's resurrection results in Christ's universal lordship. And the resurrection proves not just that the Christian will be raised, but that all creation 
has been redeemed by Jesus, that all creation has been put under his feet. Paul uses another Old Testament passage to explain this. Uh, In Psalm 8, that phrase, uh, put under his feet, uh, that might not ring uh, any bells for you, but that's from the Old Testament. It's in Psalm chapter 8. And David reflects on God's work of creation. And he says that God has made humanity a little lower than the angels, crowning him with glory and honor. We have give, he has, God has given them dominion over the things of the earth and has put all things under man's feet. David, who wrote this psalm, is marveling at God's goodness, his goodness in giving Adam and Eve dominion over everything that he created. And in verse 21 to 22, of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is drawing a parallel between Adam, under to whom God gave all dominion, and Jesus. Now, if you haven't been following in our Roman series, that'll sound absolutely mad to you, and we're not going to get into it in great detail, but if you have been following in our Roman series, you will know that Christ and Adam are really intricately connected. Where Adam brought death, Jesus brings life. Where Adam was tempted, Jesus resisted. Where Adam blames his bride for his sin, Jesus, in his sinlessness, takes the blame that his bride deserved. That's what Keith prayed earlier. Where Adam said, my will be done, what did Jesus say? Your will be done, both in a garden, both under testing, both under trees. And so Paul, using the language of Romans 8, demonstrates that Christ is this true man, And as that second Adam, just as Adam's sin condemned all humanity, so Christ's resurrection affects all humanity. God has put all things under his feet. This is the result of the resurrection of Jesus, his ultimate vindication, the proof that he is who he says he is, that he did what he said he would do. Of course, not everyone on that last day will enjoy Jesus' reign. If you're living in rebellion against God and against Jesus, when he returns at that great resurrection, you will be raised, but that won't be a good day for you. This isn't universalism. This isn't everyone gets to enjoy heaven. No, no, no. Only those who've placed their trust in Jesus. When a war ends... Only those on the side of the victor rejoice. Those who are opposed to the winning king, that's not a good day for them. The good news is that if you're listening to this sermon, and even if you're not listening to this sermon and you're still alive, it's not too late. You can repent. You can trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. You can end your rebellion against God and live as God's child and enjoy his rule forever, just like Nathan has done. You can share in his resurrection life and eagerly await a new creation, a new creation where there's no more sickness, there's no more lockdowns, there's no more viruses eagerly await that new body, that body that is like Jesus' resurrected body. No more pain, no more sickness, no more isolation ever. You can have that 
all of that has been achieved for you in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And all you have to do is trust. All you have to do is believe and live under that risen King Jesus. And really, I can't think of a better day to do that than Easter Sunday. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the final resurrection. It assures us that our sins have been forgiven. It assures us that what Jesus did worked. And it assures us of what is coming for those who trust in him. His resurrection assures us that although we are surrounded by death, this is the end of 1 Corinthians 15, and with this I'll close, verse 51. Although we are surrounded by death, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you raised Jesus from the dead. Thank you that this resurrection secured salvation for everyone who trusts in him. On this Easter Sunday, we acknowledge that we have not always lived under the rule of our risen King, and we repent of our rebellion against him. Thank you for all the evidence that you have preserved for us in the pages of Scripture. Thank you that we can be sure of the reality of the resurrection and the result of the resurrection. Help us now to rejoice that Christ is risen as we long for that day when we will look upon our risen Savior in our resurrected bodies. We pray all this in his name. Amen.